In part, the New York Evening Post printed this highly favorable review penned by Robert E. Sherwood in 1932. There can be no further doubt that Mr. March is an actor of high intelligence and of hitherto unsuspected power. The subject matter was actor Frederick March and his latest big screen effort. On the last day of 1931, the film's premiere was held at New York City's Rivoli Theater. And with high praises from critics and moviegoers, March's new year was off to a box office smashing start. An advertisement read in the Los Angeles Evening Post, Not since the boom days has any theater seen such crowds. Not since the advent of talking pictures has any audience seen such entertainment. The project that would take March from studio player to Academy Award winner wasn't an ensemble-led drama, a wartime epic, or a biographical picture. It was a late 19th century tale of a well-to-do gentleman turned murderous fiend that secured March's first of two Oscar triumphs. At the Fifth Academy Awards, March won Best Actor for the Paramount pre-code horror film Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Welcome to Fame Itself, a podcast that examines the ephemeral nature of stardom through the stories of those eclipsed by obscurity, scandal, demise, and the age-old enemy of time. This is Episode 2, Very Good and Shockingly Evil, Jekyll and Hyde, and Horror at the Oscars. Before Ruben Mamoulian's 1931 talkie, nine silent U.S. productions attempted to bring Stevens's commentary on the duality of human nature to the big screen. Often cited today as the most overlooked film genre during award season, especially on Hollywood's biggest night, horror broke through at the Oscars with March's dual role of Dr. Henry Jekyll and Edward Hyde. In this episode, we will highlight career-defining adaptations of the gothic novella, take a closer look at the first horror film to win a top acting prize, and discuss how the current golden age of horror elevates the genre from industry outsider to award season contender. Discover the meteoric rise, sensational fall, and lost legacies of former entertainment luminaries in more episodes from fame itself. Search Fame Itself in your preferred podcast provider and listen for free. Also, connect with us on TikTok and Instagram for related content, show notes, and discourse. Now, back to our episode. Noted by The Conversation, it's speculated that Henry Jekyll and Edward Hyde, two opposite personalities housed in one body, are based on a former acquaintance of Scottish author... Robert Louis Stevenson. In a crime that shocked all of late 1870s Scotland, Dr. Eugene Chantrell poisoned his spouse for personal financial gain. With this in mind, the following excerpt from the strange case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde could possibly be the author himself attempting to make sense of how someone could be good, but then commit such a shockingly evil act. With every day, and from both sides of my intelligence, the moral and the intellectual, I thus drew steadily nearer to the truth, by whose partial discovery I have been doomed to such a dreadful shipwreck, that man is not truly one, 
but truly too. Stevenson's exercise in the Gothic and the sensational remains a timeless literary work thanks to its exploration of, among other themes, the duality of man. As a matter of fact, the strange case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde has never been out of print since its original publication in 1886. A double character, an engrossing narrative that intersects the scientific and the mythical, the sophisticated and the primitive. It's no wonder that Jekyll and Hyde continue to attract the attention of nearly every art form. Among those was a new kind of entertainment that, at the turn of the 20th century, was rapidly sweeping the globe. The first film adaptation of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde was a 1908 silent production distributed by the Selig Polyscope Company. Predating the industry's migration to Hollywood, the Chicago-based operation founded by William Selig was among the first movie picture companies in the United States. The one reel short starred Hobart Bosworth and Betty Hart and was a launching pad for both actors' movie careers. Bosworth is among the industry's first quadruple threats and was among the inaugural 1,558 names honored on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. Hart became the silent it girl of her era and later a screenwriter. Jekyll and Hyde was among the earliest directorial efforts for Otis Turner, who would helm 130 film projects in just a decade. Although considered lost today, the 1908 adaptation is cited by various movie authorities as the first American horror film. Reimaginings would continue to flicker on the silver screen throughout the early teens, including a 1913 production by Independent Moving Pictures Company, later renamed Universal Pictures, the studio that would later give rise to the first golden age of horror with a series of wildly successful monster movies, including Dracula and Frankenstein. The project came early in the film career of actor King Baggett, who, before Douglas Fairbanks or Clark Gable, was crowned king of the movies at the peak of his silent superstardom. Then, the mad doctor went quiet. He would strike again in 1920. On April 13, 1920, a headline in the Los Angeles Evening Post read, Barrymore, super excellent in Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Everyone knows, read the Post review, that John Barrymore is foremost among American actors. He is fitted, artistically and physically, to portray the part of the physician. When story and star are combined, the result is a finished success. Barrymore's transition from respected Dr. Jekyll to fiendish Edward Hyde is the finest in the makeup art and real dramatic ability. The Pasadena Evening Post called it the wonder picture of the year. The Venice Evening Vanguard declared that before their very eyes, audiences would witness the most amazing change of character ever achieved by a modern actor. And upon its premiere, the audience response was so overwhelming that Photoplay reported, a door and two windows were broken by the crowds that tried to see it on its first showing in New York. An unfortunate truth about the early days of motion pictures is that, according to Martin Scorsese's Film Foundation, over 90% of American films produced before 1929 are lost. But Jekyll and Hyde of the Roaring Twenties is an exception and is now in the public domain. 
Barrymore's performance predates the Motion Picture Academy by seven years. Therefore, beyond newspaper columns, trade magazines of his era, and box office receipts, there wasn't an industry body yet established to officially recognize not only Barrymore, but also the breakthrough performance by actress Nita Naldi. But between Barrymore and another actor wearing the top hat and cape, their Jekyll and Hyde's would later prove to be milestones, not only for a single genre, but for cinema itself. With the advent of sound in the late 1920s, and to ride the waves of Universal's commercial success in the horror genre with Dracula released on Valentine's Day in 1931, Barrymore was tapped to reprise his role as Jekyll and Hyde in an upcoming talkie for Columbia Pictures. In what seemed to be an offer no one could refuse, the studio offered Barrymore a staggering $12,000 per week. That's $233,000 in today's money for his time and his talents. But Barrymore did refuse and signed a contract with MGM instead. The lead for the 1931 adaptation went to a contract player who edged out other names considered for his strong resemblance to a young Barrymore. The actor was Frederick March. Filming commenced in August 1931. Mamoulian had two months and a half million dollar budget to bring Victorian London to Paramount sound stages. Mamoulian worked closely with cinematographer Carl Struss to elevate the production's moving parts, including their title characters' internal and external turmoil. Arguably, Mamoulian's Jekyll and Hyde stands out from other cinematic adaptations because there are not one, but two leads, March and the camera. Mamoulian provided insight into his creative and technical methods to the American Society of Cinematographers, also known as the ASC, following the release of Jekyll and Hyde. As told to William Stull, the article simply titled Common Sense and Camera Angles opens with the following. The most important tool in the motion picture director's command is the camera. Understandingly used, it can be the true star of every production. Mamoulian goes on to reveal how the use of the camera was extended beyond that of a photographic machine. The use of camera angles definitely enters the realm of the psychological. To my mind, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde gained force from the fact that Carl's treatment heightened the realism of the central characters and threw the character of Mr. Hyde into sharp contrast by ruthlessly exposing its unreality. For two key moments, the camera sees what Jekyll sees. First, in the film's opening scene, his hands, as he skillfully plays the organ. His butler, Poole, who reminds him that he is due for a speaking engagement. His own reflection, that of a dapper man, as he readies himself to leave his residence. His view from the horse-drawn carriage that takes him to the university. The second instance is Jekyll's first transformation in his laboratory, his hand holding a glass containing a strange elixir, his reflection in a nearby mirror as he takes his drink in one gulp and begins to gasp and writhe until he collapses. Then Hyde emerges. I didn't want Hyde to be a monster, recalled Mamoulian. Hyde is not evil. He is the primitive, the animal in us.
over the course of six transformations, Hyde's appearance gradually deteriorates to keep audiences visually on their toes. The makeup applied by Wally Westmore took hours and required painful manipulations of March's face. The stretching and pulling of delicate skin were accomplished with colloidian, surgical cotton, and thread. It was horrible at the time, March later recalled, but it's interesting to look back at. Charles Tranberg's 2013 biography of March, titled Frederick March, a Consummate Actor, provides another view of the goings-on behind the scenes. Paramount was content with the film being in the hands of Mamoulian and Struss. Mamoulian, as did so many during this era, came from Broadway. His 1929 directorial debut, Applause, was not only among the films to put a nail in the silent era's coffin, the movie's narrative was enhanced by his innovative use of camera movement. Mamoulian's dabble in the horror realm would not be treated differently, and his creative and technical trademarks are evident throughout Jekyll and Hyde. Struss, along with Charles Rosher, was the first ever recipient of the Academy Award for Cinematography. Awarded for his work in the silent drama Sunrise, A Song of Two Humans, historians and critics consider the film a cinematic masterpiece. Later, Struss became a collaborator of Charlie Chaplin's, adding The Great Dictator and Limelight to his filmography. The same confidence was not placed in March. Paramount's head of production, B.P. Schulberg, expressed his doubts regarding the studio's light romantic comedy regular tackling such a complex and demanding dramatic role. Nevertheless, the unconvinced Schulberg, as revealed by Tranberg, sent words of encouragement to March via telegram. My dear Freddie, best wishes to you upon the inception of the greatest opportunity, as well as the most arduous role and the most exacting task of your splendid career. Stop. May it give you your place in the sun for all time. Stop. We appreciate the earnest effort you have made to prepare yourself for this trying part and hope it's rewarded by the plaudits of the world. Released on December 31, 1931, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde became among the studio's top box office performers of 1932. In late September, the Los Angeles Times made their first round of Oscar predictions in their Sunday edition. Times writer Edwin Schallert identified several top contenders, including Scarface, What Price Hollywood, Grand Hotel, Letty Linton, Universal's Frankenstein, and Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. On October 13th, the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences released its Oscar nominees list ahead of the November ceremony. Frederick March would indeed be attending the Academy Awards. Jekyll and Hyde was nominated in three competitive categories. Percy Heath and Samuel Hoffenstein for Best Adaptation Writing, Carl Struss for Best Cinematography, and Frederick March for Best Actor. March's competition for the Golden Statuette included Wallace Beery for The Champ and Alfred Lunt for The Guardsman. Compared to the pomp and circumstance of the Oscars today, the Fifth Academy Awards was a relatively quick affair. Hosted by Conrad Nigel, 
The evening's winners, including March, the only win for Jekyll and Hyde, had their statues in hand in under two hours. But in typical award night fashion, the event wasn't without surprises. In an Oscar history first, March tied with Wallace Beery for Best Actor. According to then Academy rules, both were declared winners since March captured the top spot by just a single vote. Since November 18, 1932, there have only been five more ties in the organization's history. A decade later, another studio famous for its musicals and lavish productions took a stab at the popular tale and went to extreme measures to ensure its success. MGM's 1941 production of Jekyll and Hyde was an all-star affair, starring Spencer Tracy, Ingrid Bergman, and Lana Turner. Off-screen talents included director Victor Fleming, cinematographer Joseph Ruttenberg, costume designer Adrian, art director Cedric Gibbons, and makeup artist Jack Dawn. By this time, the Hayes Code was in effect, and as a result, Fleming's final cut displays key differences from the 1931 version. For instance, March's Dr. Jekyll is frustrated, both romantically and sexually, regarding his future father-in-law's insistence upon a lengthy engagement period with his fiancée Muriel, played by Rose Hobart. For Tracy and Lana Turner, this was reduced to a brief mention. Furthermore, Ivy, portrayed by Miriam Hopkins and then Ingrid Bergman, and her attempted seduction of Jekyll features a less scantily clad Bergman. The most striking difference between the two is the approach to Hyde's appearance. Mamoulian modeled his Hyde after the Neanderthal man. As a result, March as Hyde is unrecognizable. In contrast, the makeup applied to Tracy is much more subtle. It's Tracy, but not. It's Jekyll, but not. The decision emphasizes a psychological rather than a physical transformation, making Tracy's hide easier to blend in with the rest of society. Like its 1931 predecessor, Jekyll and Hyde went to the Oscars. Although not nominated in any acting categories, the 1941 version was nominated for cinematography, editing, and score. Unlike the outcome a decade prior, the production walked away empty-handed. Naturally, remakes of frequently adapted works will be compared to one another. MGM went to extreme lengths to keep the comparisons to Mamoulian's celebrated version at a minimum. The studio acquired the rights to the first horror film ever to win an Oscar and rendered the title virtually inaccessible for public viewing for years, so much so that the film, for a time, was considered lost. As a result of this suppression, the impact and significance of this award-winning film faded. The horror genre was left largely uncelebrated for decades. But what about Psycho? The 1960s psychological horror film often ranked among the greatest films of all time and was selected for preservation in the National Film Registry in 1992. You know, the film directed by Alfred Hitchcock, who was wildly recognized as the master of suspense? Psycho was nominated for several Oscars, four to be exact. Best Cinematography, Black and White, Best Art Direction, Black and White, Best Actress, and Best Director. 
However, the film wasn't a Best Picture nominee. The film ranked by the American Film Institute as the 14th greatest American movie of all time, lost in every category. Additionally, Hitchcock has been nominated for Best Director five times and has never won in the category. Well, what about Rosemary's Baby, the 1968 psychological horror film directed by Roman Polanski and starring Mia Farrow, which was both a box office and critical success? As noted by film critic Roger Ebert in his 1968 review, the best thing that can be said about the film, I think, is that it works. Polanski has taken a most difficult situation and made it believable right up to the end. In this sense, he even outdoes Hitchcock. The film that gave the master of suspense a run for his money won the Oscar for Best Supporting Actress for Ruth Gordon and earned a nomination for Polanski for Best Adapted Screenplay. Rosemary's Baby was left out of the Best Director and Best Picture categories, and Pharaoh, who arguably gives one of cinema's most memorable performances, is nowhere to be found in the Best Actress category. Between 1931 and 1973, films like Frankenstein, King Kong, Psycho, Rosemary's Baby, and William Friedkin's The Exorcist played in packed cinemas. A top box office performer and a vehicle for cultural conversation, The Exorcist became the first horror film nominated for Best Picture. It lost to The Sting. Two years later, Steven Spielberg's Jaws terrified a nation so much that beachgoers were apprehensive about setting foot in open waters. Produced for just under $10 million, the monster-thriller hybrid grossed over $450 million and gave rise to a new genre, the blockbuster. Jaws won three Oscars, Best Film Editing, Best Original Dramatic Score, and Best Sound. Although nominated for Best Picture, Spielberg was left out of the director's category. Jaws lost to Milos Forman's One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. To date, only four horror films would follow The Exorcist and Jaws in the Best Picture category. The Silence of the Lambs, The Sixth Sense, Black Swan, and Get Out. The genre holds a single win, the 1991 psychological thriller about Hannibal Lecter, another mad doctor tale that explores, among other topics, the age-old theme of good versus evil. But why has horror historically been shut out of the awards race? First, is horror a career killer? Previously mentioned on this podcast in our episode, De La Noche, Lupita Tovar and Universal's Dracula, director Todd Browning was once coined the Edgar Allan Poe of cinema. Best known for his contributions to the horror canon, such as Dracula starring Bela Lugosi, Browning made his name during the silent era and arrived as a respected industry figure on the set of Dracula. Another project that defines Browning's legacy is the 1932 pre-code horror film, Freaks. The film was so shocking to 1930s test audiences that MGM made significant cuts without Browning's cooperation. Premiering in February 1932, the film was divisive among critics and a box office failure. 
The film was banned in the UK upon its release and remained so for 30 years. Browning, whose early career consisted of over 50 directorial projects between 1915 and 1931, would helm only four more films between 1933 and 1939. Other careers and legacies considered casualties of the genre include director Michael Powell, Marlon Brando, and, oddly enough, Bela Lugosi. As a result of the overwhelming success of Dracula, Lugosi was typecast as a monster or a villain for the remainder of his career. Born in Hungary, Lugosi cut his teeth on the stage and had a filmography that began in his native Hungary during the silent era. He often pleaded with his agents to find him more varied roles with little to no results. The last decade of Lugosi's career is marked by a string of low-budget films, including his collaborations with Ed Wood, who was posthumously crowned the greatest worst director of all time. Second, does the genre overall lack quality? Director Simon Rumley told the BBC, there are no clear-cut formulas for making money in the film business, but one thing has become certain. Horror still has the capacity to be the most profitable genre when you balance money invested against money returned. The 2018 article provides insight into how being a designated moneymaker has rendered the genre lowbrow among critics and industry insiders. Horror movies, then, are one of the safest ways for financiers to get a return on their investment. But this very cheapness, along with, let's face it, all the blood and guts, is also why they are perceived as a slightly embarrassing bargain-basement alternative to mainstream drama. This stigma has remained so that when a horror film does come along and checks all the award season boxes, the project is referred to as anything but just a horror film. Lastly, does the genre have a branding problem? Steven Spielberg, among the most commercially successful directors of all time, first etched his name in the movie history books with a horror featuring a flesh-eating fanged monster at the center of it. But why call it a monster movie when you can call it a thriller? In an interview with Variety, Guillermo del Toro revealed that his inspiration for the 2017 film, Shape of Water, was the 1954 horror film, The Creature from the Black Lagoon. But why call it a creature feature when you can call it a romantic fantasy? In 2017, Jordan Peele won Best Original Screenplay for his directorial debut, Get Out. The film, produced by Bloomhouse Productions and Peele's production company, Monkey Paw Productions, employs familiar horror motifs to highlight truths about systematic racism. The Writers Guild of America considers Get Out as, so far, the greatest screenplay of the 21st century. But why call it a psychological horror movie when you can call it elevated horror? horror. Laura Bradley of Vanity Fair provided insight into the rise of this new subgenre in 2019. After the generally uninspired horror of the 2000s, horror's image had hit a low point, and both Bloomhouse and A24 both had a hand in turning that ship around, 
The elevated horror discussion peaked in the latter half of the 2010s as titles like The Witch, Get Out, and Hereditary made waves. And with certain films like Get Out, the marketing strategy specifically targeted not only horror fans, but awards audiences as well. So maybe it's not that horror got elevated, but that this has become the decade when mainstream audiences finally started to notice. There's another brand that's necessary to consider when talking about the award show shutout of the horror genre, and that is the Oscar brand. Although not a horror film, the infamous snub of Adam Sandler's performance in the 2019 indie film Uncut Gems gives an idea of how the deck can be stacked against a production even if the final product is recognized as a career best effort. As reported by Cinema Blend in 2020, one voter noted that Adam Sandler gave a tour de force performance in the record-breaking indie film, but it's still not enough to allow him to forget his overall body of work, including cheesy and dumb Netflix comedies. The Academy member admitted that the brand of an actor does have an effect on how they vote, and Sandler's brand doesn't match up, whereas Leonardo DiCaprio's might. By this logic, one could conclude that when it comes to horror movies and their award worthiness, it's not just a matter of a single performance or even weighing a director or an actor against their own body of work. Productions are weighed against an entire genre. The terms elevated or smart horror indicated that certain films are cut above, and critics and commentators, including Nicholas Barber of the BBC, have expressed their aversion to this new verbiage. What it articulates, wrote Barber, is the film industry's perennial ambivalence towards horror, the genre it can't live with, but can't live without. The reality is that typecasting, low-quality productions, critical panning, and so-called career-killer productions are instances not specific to one genre. It's worth noting that many of those considered A-listers today got their start in horror productions, including Jack Nicholson, who starred in a string of Roger Corman flicks, including The Little Shop of Horrors and The Terror, Tom Hanks in He Knows You're Alone, Jennifer Connelly in Creepers, Johnny Depp in A Nightmare on Elm Street, and Renee Zellweger in Texas Chainsaw Massacre, The Next Generation. And, perhaps, it's worth mentioning that along with Khan, another film festival known for being a vehicle for award season buzz, was launched with the screening of, you guessed it, a horror film. On August 6, 1932, the Venice Film Festival screened its first movie, Ruben Mamoulian's Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Although no awards were presented in its first year, the Venice Film Festival did conduct an audience poll. Jekyll and Hyde was voted Most Original Film, and Frederick March was voted Best Actor. At over 90 years old, Mamoulian's Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde is among those horror films whose impact, subtext, and innovations reveal what has always been present within the genre across every decade. Great performances, compelling storytelling, intriguing subtext, and masterful artistic and technical executions. This present-day horror renaissance, marked by movies such as Get Out, 
The Witch, A Quiet Place, and Hereditary, along with increased access to the genre's classic catalog thanks to streaming platforms and the broadening of cinema commentary both on and offline, is leaving the film powers that be no choice but to adhere to the old adage, you can't beat them, so join them, and discover just why horror is among the art form's most fascinating genres. That intrigue is perfectly captured in a key scene from 1931's Jekyll and Hyde. As Hyde's abuse of Ivy continues to escalate, he gives her this chilling warning. If you do one thing I don't approve of while I'm gone, the least little thing, mind you, I'll show you what horror means. Thank you so much for listening. Episode 2, Very Good and Shockingly Evil, Jekyll, Hyde, and Horror at the Oscars, was written, produced, edited, and narrated by Destiny Lopez. To be the first to know about new episodes, follow Fame Itself on your preferred podcast provider, and don't forget to turn on notifications. Connect with Fame Itself on TikTok and Instagram. Also consider taking a few moments to leave a rating and review. This really helps the podcast become more discoverable. However you choose to support Fame Itself is always greatly appreciated. Fame Itself will return to, once again, examine the ephemeral nature of stardom. Until next time.